At The Motley Fool, we celebrate Motley. I mean, of course we do. You know this. It's The Motley Fool. You know that Motley is the name given to the garments worn by the jesters of your patchwork quilt-like garments, many colored, signaling to the members of medieval courts that this, this Motley-wearing person, male or female, this was the court jester, Motley. Well, the motliest, most ragtag podcast that I do every month is the Mailbag Podcast. The final Wednesday of every month, your questions, our best answer. It's anything goes. It's highly motley here in Rule Breakerville. And sure enough, once again, this month, we have wide-ranging topics from penny stocks to how to handle underperformance, not in your portfolio, but in your business. And should we rename the Market Cap Game Show? Only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For $75 off your first order, visit Molecule.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. That's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E, Molecule with a K.com, promo code FOOL75. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. It's been a busy month, the month of April. We started April with five stocks for the Age of Miracles. That was my most recent five-stock sampler. That came out on April 3rd. And then seven days later, it was time to talk about how to make your corporate culture, your company culture, for-profit, not-for-profit, your workplace, how to make it more foolish, how to break the rules. We shared some of what we do here at The Motley Fool, and we got some good questions back. We'll be covering some of those on this mailbag. Also, last week, stock sampler reviews. Because if we're going to pick stocks every 10 weeks or so, we might as well check back a year, two, three years later and see, how did they do? And what can we learn from that? And we had a, I had a lot of fun reviewing two five-stock samplers last week with my friends Brian Feroldi and Jim Mueller. Well, that all brings us to the final Wednesday. That's right. Hasn't April flown? This is the final Wednesday of April. Next Wednesday will be May 1st. So, here we are, with your mailbag. And as always, as I mentioned at the top, a motley array of questions and conversations. And I've lined up my guest stars once again. In fact, Bill Mann is going to be joining me very shortly. But before we get to Bill, I also love to lead off with some hot takes, just from Twitter, some shorter takes. And so that's how we're going to start this episode. The first one comes from Nate Smith, who wrote at RBI Podcast, listen to an old grab bag where you mentioned two reasons you like Trex. That's the outdoor decking company, the composite decking company, Trex, T R E X, both the name of the company and its ticker symbol, by the way. But Nate goes on, you left a key one out, a key reason you like it out. He said, you. Invest in stocks that hold your values. Well, Trex products are made from 95% recycled plastic. It's the only major marketable product derived from recycling one-use plastic bags. Well, that's a great thing to hear, Nate. I don't think I'd remember that myself, but isn't it wonderful since when you and I invest, truly our dollars are shaping the future, both as consumers and investors. And so, to think that our goal as investors is to profit off of the world being shaped by the dollars we're putting into these investments. We really are helping companies when we buy them, whether as IPOs, as we'll be talking about in a little bit, or older companies like Trex that have been around for a while. You surely are shaping the future. It's nice to think, with conscious capitalism on my mind, as I'm going to a big conference in Phoenix, Arizona this week, it's great to think that when our dollars are well invested, we profit and the world benefits as well. So, there's a great quick example from Nate Smith at Nate underscore one underscore Smith on Twitter about Trex. Another hot take. This one comes from Erin Watterson. Thanks for writing, Erin. This is really nice. Hi, she says. I'm a subscriber to Rule Breakers and Stock Advisor for the past year. I wish I'd been a subscriber since the AOL days. I wanted to commend David on his genuineness, love of his family and other people, and the environment. Listening to David is refreshing in this current setting of drama and negativity. Thank you for sharing yourself and your talents. Thank you very much, Erin. That's very kind of you to write. Um, I love hearing nice things. It, it really fuels me. I'm one of those people who does better with positive reinforcement than negative reinforcement. I don't think I would have been great in the Marines, for example. I like to get propped up by people. It helps me prop other things up. So, Aaron, really nice of you to write in. If you ever want a free job at the moment, no, I'm, I'm kidding. Maybe I'm kidding. All right. And the final hot take this month, this comes from Luke Joseph. Hi, David. Just wanted to say thank you for answering my question on last month's mailbag, the RBI podcast. I usually listen to the podcast on double speed, says Luke. 
Oh, shame on you, Luke. You're missing so much of the nuance of this podcast. Oh, I understand. Many people like to listen on faster speed, and admittedly, it is clearly a more efficient way to process podcasts, audiobooks, etc. But Luke goes on to say he did slow it down, though, to regular speed when his question was answered, and he listened to it over and over again. Luke writes, not only did you guys answer the question perfectly and assemble my requested dream team, I was amazed and amused that you actually named the podcast after my question, too. It really made my day. Well, for those who weren't around for this mailbag a month ago, Luke asked us to assemble a dream team to talk to biotech valuations and why biotechnology companies so often look so expensively priced and would you ever want to buy those stocks? So, Luke asked me to put together a dream team of a few of his and my favorite analysts speaking to biotech, and we did that. And you're right, Luke. We named the podcast after, well, not exactly you, but in a sense, you, your suggestion. So, it shows clearly that we are very, and we always have been for 26 years of The Motley Fool, community-driven. And that is the spirit of this mailbag every month. So, thank you, Luke. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number one. First up this month, Surrender Punya. Dr. Punya, thank you for your note. David, I'm a big fan of financial literacy. You say, I've been educating myself by reading books and also listening to the podcast. I'm reading the book 100 to 1 right now. I haven't read that myself. Just finished reading 25 years of Buffett annual letters. Dr. Punya, I've also not done that myself. I actually get excited. You go on each week and look forward to the daily and weekly podcasts, including Market Foolery, Industry Focus. These are all Motley Fool podcasts. Thank you. And of course, Rule Breaker Investing. This is very kind. You are my hero. Thank you for your invaluable service that you provide. I wish I had joined 10 years ago. I did come across the service, but the name kept me away. I am such a small f fool. That does happen, by the way. The Motley Fool name doesn't exactly suggest Schwab-like, Vanguard-like trust to people. And some people think that we're just kind of joking until they eventually look a second or third time or a friend mentions it to them. Anyway, you say, I finally took the plunge a little over a year ago. I'm glad I did. Glad to be a capital F fool. Can we have a commentary on IPOs? There's a flood of them coming each week. Fool on. Sincerely, surrender. Well, I guess I want to say three quick things about IPOs. The first is, I want to make sure that we're all clear on what an IPO is. So, IPO stands for the phrase initial public offering. And that's basically when companies that were previously private, started by an entrepreneur, probably venture capital backed or sometimes family money backed, company gets big enough that it decides it wants to sell a portion of itself to the public at large through the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or another exchange, sell a portion of itself to you and me armchair investors, and we can become part owners of that company, too. The company is born on the public market. So, day one, when a company IPOs, yes, it's a verb, too. doesn't really make that much sense, does it? Initial public offerings, day one, when it IPOs, that company has a ticker symbol, and it becomes a stock. And you and I can buy it. So, number one, just wanted to define our term and make sure we're all clear on what an IPO is. Point number two, none of us has to buy them. Not one of us ever has to buy an IPO. Rarely have I ever bought a stock within the first day, let alone month, that that stock came public. I wouldn't say I've never done it. I'd have to search my memory. I've been investing for 34 years now as an individual investor since taking over my own account at age 18. I don't think that I've ever bought a company on the first day or two of it being traded. In part, that's because those companies tend to have their stocks, if they're good companies, zoom way up. There's a lot of intense interest, especially, as Dr. Punya is mentioning, in this time where you're finding out about Zoom coming public, and Lyft coming public, and Uber, and Slack, I think, might come public here in 2019. And the list goes on of interesting companies. Beyond Meat, I think, is going public in 2019. So, there are a lot of interesting companies that weren't going public in 2018, 17, or 16. There's a little bit of pent-up demand for whatever reason. A lot of them are going public this year. And there's news stories around them, and their stocks typically come out. And Zoom, just like Zoom's IPO did last week, the stock up 70% in one day. But one of the reasons I don't typically buy them at IPO is because you and I don't get that 70% gain. You hear the news say the stock was up 70%, but what's actually happening there is the company gaps up on the opening. It had an intended opening price, but from the first second of trading, buyers have bid it up. And so instead of a company, I'm making this up, coming public at 30, all of a sudden, first trade will be at 42. And you'll hear, wow, that stock's up more than 30%. 
Nobody profited as a public stock market investor from that. Only the people who owned the shares the day or week or three years before, the founders of the company and the venture capital, only those people own the stock at 30 or below that. Everybody else is starting to buy it at 42. And often, within six months, those stocks are back down to where they initially traded or lower than that, studies have shown. So, point number two, you really don't have to buy any IPO. And in fact, Here's a little mental exercise I like to go through, and I did this recently on this show. I started to suggest, what are some other stocks you could buy instead of that IPO? I often can find companies that I like just as much, if not more, that are surer things in my mind than some of the new births that are occurring on the public markets. Not to say you shouldn't be excited about a great company like Uber or an interesting IPO like Beyond Meat, but it is to say, you and I don't have to buy them. We can do really well as investors without getting caught up in that IPO hype. And then point number three, if you are interested in an IPO, and I mean, I love it when a cool new company that I'm interested in is born in the public markets. I was really fascinated by Match Group when it came public a few years ago. It's been one of our better stock picks. I would say this consider just buying a small initial position and then maybe add to that over time. And you know that we like to add to our winners. We don't so called double down on our losers as rule breaker investors, but consider that. So you can, you can toe dip, you can just start with a, a small position and then if you like how the company's developing then maybe go from there. Now oh my gosh is is it Bill Mann the global director of small cap research in Full Studio? I snuck in. How are you David? Uh, you didn't sneak in Bill cuz I mean that <laughs> that really understates. We laid out a red carpet, we gave you free Starbucks. That's true. And uh, and it's an honor to have you. You were here just a few weeks ago and I have a mailbag item that was that was spawned by that. But before we get to oh, that fantastic. Bill, I want to just ask you David, any quick thought from you on IPOs. Yeah, I think a lot of people get very excited by them. I mean, obviously, it's it's an event, but the thing that you have to recognize about investing is that once a company comes public, it's public until you, you you'd want to say forever, but until you know until it goes private or whatever. So there's plenty of time. And one company that we all know and love is Pinterest. And one thing that I like to point out, just thinking about Pinterest, for example, is that when it came public, it popped, and then the stock dropped a lot because I think they struggled a little bit by virtue of now being in the light of having to report quarterly. And so companies really change a little bit once they've become public. So never feel like you're missing out on a publicly, you know, on a on a public offering simply because you've missed the IPO. You know what's funny? Here's here's just a quick analogy, Bill. Thinking about this is not um, taking a shot at Pinterest, a company I admire. But no, it's just more the humor around IPOs. Are IPOs kind of like new cars? They're really shiny. As soon as you drive them off the lot, seconds later, they're down 30% a lot of the time? A lot of the time, they are. You have to be pretty lucky for it not to drop at some point. I mean, the great news about most IPOs or a lot of IPOs is that they don't keep going down like your shiny new car. But fortunately, Facebook did come back, and I that's know there's right. a lot of motley fool money long term riding on yeah, a company right. like that, where we we waited for it to drop some and then bought. That's right. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number two, and the ostensible reason that I had Bill in, but it's a pleasure to have him anyway. Number two, this one comes from John Rustad, and he writes this: Hi, David and Bill Mann. Recently, I heard Bill on a podcast mention. He's a TD Ameritrade customer. Now, as a TD customer as well, John writes, I'd like to know how to get more free trades. Any ideas? When calling TD to ask for this, John goes on, the answer provided is they offer more training and their customer services better than competitors. One way to get free trades is by the referral program. Not exactly sure I want to spend my time that way. Yeah. It would seem I'm not the only one, John concludes, with this question. I've heard many fools talking about getting free trades. TD Ameritrade, Bill Mann. Yes. The one thing that I would say, and John has already done this, is you have to ask. What you need to understand about brokerages at this point is that the trades themselves are commodities for them. They cost them nothing. So, it really makes no sense. In fact, I think within the next five years, most trades will actually be free. And brokers know this. They know this about themselves. They know this about their businesses. So, when you call and ask, you can simply say, I may, I have made X number of trades. I've been with you for how many ever number of years? Let's call it out. For me, with Ameritrade, it'd be 25 years. Wow. Yeah, was it was it Ameritrade back then? It was just Ameritrade back then. I was with Waterhouse. Waterhouse Securities was purchased by By eventually by TD Bank, which then merges with Ameritrade some years later. That's right. 
I was with Waterhouse. Do you, we had a lot of early advertisements since we were yeah. back in the day in the 1990s. You were with us, Bill, from some of the uh, early stage discount brokers. You remember Mr. Stock? Mr. Stock. Uh, God, Mr. Stock. I had not thought about Mr. Stock. Daytech was another. Yep. Yeah. They I were, think that might even be part of Ameritrade. I, I, I think it is. Too. They, it all seems to have rolled up into yeah. just a few different companies. But I was Waterhouse. So I've okay. been there a long time. Nice. And. You have to understand that they don't want you to go anywhere else because they make so much more money on on you by virtue of your money and your assets being with them through stock lending, through lots of other things, through uh, through through just having those assets in house. So they okay. don't want you to go anywhere. So ask ask very nicely, but be clear on the fact that it would be quite easy for you to leave and be nice about it because. They all, you know, they 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 want to say yes. They don't want you to leave, and so yeah, just just keep asking, but be prepared to leave. Now it sounds like John was told things like, "Hey, um, uh, referral program, you know, that's the way you can get free trades. Like, let us know your buddy, and your buddy, if he joins, you can get free trades." Yeah, my buddy's got a brokerage account. I know about yours, right? So, so you suspect that's might maybe an initial line sure. uh, that that you'll be provided, but maybe if you keep pushing on it a little bit, like I'm going to move my account to my buddies. Right. My buddy my buddy's happy with his brokerage. Yeah. Just keep in mind that it costs them nothing to do trades for you. And I mean nothing, nothing. Not virtually nothing. Nothing. So uh, you know, tell them you tell them that you will do X number of trades in a year. We don't like doing a lot of trades, but if they are free, it's it's helpful. They still make money on the spreads between the buy and the ask when, when you know when 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 you buy and sell. So Bill, what would you know, get you to move your account? Would you ever consider? I know you and I are somewhere around the age of fifty now. Somewhere around the very, age, very, very close to the age of fifty, Bill. If I right. recall, it was just weeks ago. <laughs> um, right. Could you see yourself moving your account in the next twenty-five years? Sure, and I think, uh, as with a lot of people, you know, my children have their college accounts, and those are at different brokers. A lot of people have their Spread accounts at multiple brokers, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, it would. It would require some paperwork, but to save four, five, six hundred dollars in trades over the you know over the course of the remainder of my shortening life, uh, I would do it in a second. <laughs> Are you saying right now on this podcast to TD Ameritrade if they don't offer you, let's go with a hundred <laughs> free trades that you, Bill Man, are going to move your account? That's a that's a bit much. I actually have I actually have made the call. Uh, so yeah, they 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 have come way down and have offered okay. me quite a bit. So right, there's no real need to, and and I'm very happy at uh, at TD Ameritrade. All right, let me share one more mailbag item with you, Bill. Get your quick input on this one. This comes from Kevin Marcotte. Kevin writes, "Hi, David. Love your podcast, along with the many others from the Motley Fool, all helping entertain, educate me on daily commutes from work." He says, "I'm also a proud member of the Stock Advisor Canada service. Hope to continue as a member for a long time." Kevin goes on. As you guessed from the title, which was FOMO, basically, mm-hmm. my question for you this month is one that comes with some anxiety. About two weeks ago, Kevin writes, I'd saved enough money, I was ready to purchase my latest stock, Disney. Life quickly got in the way, time slipped by, all while my savings sat in cash waiting to be deployed. I had mixed emotions when I heard Disney's latest plans during its investor day just recently mm-hmm. about its details on its new Disney Plus movie rental service. I was happy to see the stock soaring over 11% on the news. However, I felt very lowercase f foolish for (laughs) forgetting to purchase the stock earlier that week. Now, I'm sitting here feeling like I missed out on the pop, and the opportunity to purchase the stock has passed. My simple question is this. Would you have bought the stock in order to gain 11%? Like, Is that your end goal? Maybe we should come up with a new acronym or a portmanteau. We'll call it REBUY. Like recency bias. Yes, the stock went up very quickly uh, in the last two weeks on the heels of this announcement. I suspect that there will be challenges behind this uh, the, this announcement as they roll it out. I think you're going to get plenty of opportunities. But if Disney is the company that you wanted to own 11% ago, it's still the company that you want to own today. That is so well put. You know, Kevin closes by saying, Maybe I let the stock ride out the news a bit before ultimately buying anyway. Buy it right away, knowing I believe the long term the company going to beat the market. I realize this may be small in the long term, and I think with that line, he's showing Bill that he has the foolish mentality. Gotcha. Ultimately, I love your concept of would you have bought that stock just for that eleven percent gain? Yeah, I don't think many of us would. I know all of us here at the Motley Fool focused on the businesses themselves, not the stock price movements, and always thinking about three-plus years, we wouldn't ever do it that way. Absolutely so, not. So, are you saying, Kevin, just go out and just, just buy it now? Just 
Here's what I would say: if if you really do actually feel bad about the stock that the stock has moved, maybe especially if you've gone and gotten your free trades from your broker, buy a little bit, get 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 a stake in the ground, and you can buy more over time. Don't worry about the fact that you have missed what's happened over the last two weeks. You know, no more rebuy. And let's just get into uh, you know get into the mindset of buying for the long term, and you will be just fine. And Disney is about as good a vehicle as you can get to get there. Thank you, Bill. You're welcome, David. Thanks for having me. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number four. This one comes from Anoop Iyer. Hi, David, and the RBI team. I do enjoy the market cap game show. You right, but I can't help wondering if podcast listeners would be better served by the use of enterprise value instead of market cap as an indicator of company size. Doing so would help sensitize analysts and listeners to debt on the balance sheet. Now, before I go on with this, I want to say that I have certainly considered this and I've thought about this from time to time. So I'm very glad that Anoop is raising this as a topic in this month's mailbag. And the reason that this is important. Quick difference between market cap and enterprise value is that enterprise value is basically market cap accounting for whether there is cash or debt on the balance sheet. And in fact, Anoop Iyer goes on to illustrate this pretty well, but I just want everybody to know that ultimately, when you buy out a company or look at the price in the market cap, it is reflecting whether that company has a ton of debt or a ton of cash. And so it is a factor worth considering. Anyway, continuing on with this note, Picking two examples from the recent show, Anoop writes Amerco, which is the parent company of U-Haul, at a market cap of seven billion, seems valued below Etsy, which has a market cap of eight billion. Until we take a closer look at the cash versus debt position of these two companies, it turns out Amerco carries a good bit of debt on its books, whereas Etsy's net cash overshadows its debts. So the enterprise values ring in this way. Americo is actually, instead of being a $7 billion market cap, it's more like a $10 billion enterprise value, while Etsy is about a billion less with its enterprise value. You go on to provide an example with Southwest Airlines, etc. So, how about the game show using enterprise value instead? All right, well, two quick answers. The first one is, I have considered this, and yet I have ultimately rejected this. And let me explain why. First off, the market cap game show has a lovely, I'm even going to say a mellifluous ring to it. Whereas the enterprise value game show, it just it sounds a little bit unfun to me. And so, and and further, enterprise value, Anoop, is a little bit more complicated as a concept. So each time we did this, we'd have to explain the cash and the debt of the company. And it would be as if Taking a fun game show like Jeopardy, you were starting to have some technicalities in how people answered. Like they would have to specifically define some of the terms as they give the answer in order to get credit. So it adds a layer of complication that I don't think fits the game show quite as well. I also want to mention something else about enterprise value, which is a little counterintuitive but kind of fun to think about. When you buy a company, let's take a Merco, which has a market cap of seven billion. And you are assuming $3 billion of its debt, because that's the net debt for Amerco. You are, in fact, in a way, paying $10 billion. It sounds like it's worth more because it has a lot of debt. On the other hand, Etsy, which you mentioned had a market cap of $8 billion, because it has about a billion in cash, it makes it sound like it's worth less. Its enterprise value is only $7 billion, because when you pay $8 billion for Etsy, you are assuming $1 billion of cash. So even though I think that enterprise value is the right term and the right concept and I'd want anybody who knows market cap if they want to go on from course 101 to the 102 level, you should definitely learn enterprise value. But in a funny way, it seems to pump up the values for companies that have huge amounts of debt and lower the values for companies that have huge amounts of cash, which is a little counterintuitive to me and in some ways sends the wrong message. But forget about that sidelight. I just want to say, number one, it's probably not quite as fun a game show with not quite as fun a name. But number two, I'm absolutely glad that you raised that. And I would want anybody who, as they get increasingly serious about investing and knowledgeable, I'd want anybody to go from market cap to know that the enterprise value is an even more important way of thinking about the value of a company. But you know what's something great about market cap? You could take the price per share. And you can multiply by the shares outstanding and get the market cap. It's a pretty good approximation. Anyway, thank you very much, Anoop Iyer. All right, rule breaker mailbag item number. Wait, gotta pay the piper.
Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. Molecule, that's with a K, has introduced a breakthrough science that's finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Molecule's technology has been personally effective and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people. Molecule has given allergy and asthma sufferers around the country an all-new experience. Molecule replaces technology from nearly a century ago. I was just reading a good chapter in a book about the Nest thermostat and how the designer of the Nest, Tony Fidel, who'd worked at Apple as a designer, just one day looked at his own thermostat. He's like, this thing is so stupid. It's hard to program. It's been the same thing since I was a kid. There's got to be a way to do this better. And Nest was born of that. Well, it sounds like the people at Molecule kind of taking a similar approach. So, Molecule replaces technology from nearly a century ago. The HEPA filter technology, that's H-E-P-A, that's been used to clean your air was developed in the 1940s, and there haven't been any major innovations since. Molecule has created a new filtration system that doesn't just collect pollutants on antiquated filters, but destroys them on a molecular level. When you turn on Molecule, you're creating the purest air possible combating allergy season by destroying allergens in the home. Now, Bill Mann just walked sneezing out of the studio as he said goodbye to me. We talked about it briefly. Pollen, I also suffer as well. Well, for $75 off your first order, if you know somebody who suffers, maybe you do too, from asthma or allergies, visit Molecule, M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com and enter the promo code FOOL75, all lowercase, F-O-O-L-75. That's Molecule with a K dot com, promo code Fool seven five. All right, and now to rule breaker mailbag item number five. And oh, is it Kara Chambers from the Motley Fool? Kara, welcome back. Hello. A delight to have you. You were here a couple weeks ago. We were just talking earlier in this podcast about our company culture tips, and it was I think it was episode five for us, volume five, mm-hmm. uh, sharing so much of what you and we have learned at The Motley Fool about how to make your workplace culture better. Now, Kara, what was our theme of the most recent episode? We were breaking the traditional rules of HR. Absolutely. And we've tried to do that whenever it makes sense here at The Motley Fool, and I'm sure we have more of that in our future as we continue to evolve as every culture does. But yes, you and Lee Burbage, uh, your compatriot, came in and just shared some new ways of thinking about how to do office culture. Now, unsurprisingly, this spawned some good questions, and I want to share this one from Devinder Mahajan, and he writes, and very understandably so, he says, I'm sure that in spite of the effort to find good people to work for you at The Motley Fool, you get bad actors once in a while. He goes on, without performance review, because we talked about it, that's not a mandatory thing here at The Motley Fool. So, naturally, Devinder wonders, Without performance review showing that they're doing a poor job, how would you get rid of or discipline bad actors? So, we can certainly apply this to The Motley Fool. It's happened in the past. I'm sure it'll happen in the future, but also to anybody else working maybe in HR or making those kinds of decisions. So, Carol, let's take it right there. And first of all, I think as I read Devinder's note, I'm thinking about, you know, how do you find out in the first place if somebody's not doing well if you're not doing mandatory performance reviews? Sure, I get this question a lot, and and so without performance reviews, what you have to really double down on is um, making sure your managers know how to set expectations. Um, you can help your future self by talking about that early on, even in the recruiting process. We have very high standards for performance here uh, that will help you. And then um, we train up new managers in small groups of four, and there's several topics, and one of them is this very conversation of how to have this, how to have tough conversations with your employees. Um, so we spend a lot of time coaching managers on looking for signals if there's something. So signals might be if you're spending a lot of more of your time than you expected trying to fix this problem. Um, what I, a term mm. that I love is something called coaching the ghost, where is if you're sitting in the room talking about someone, and then you realize you spend a lot of time talking about this with someone, you feel like you got some work done, but really no one has actually talked to the person. So it's very common human behavior, but um, I like that name, coaching a ghost, coaching the person not So you the room. find you're just thinking about this person more yeah. than you should be. It's occupying more of your yeah. time because presumably things aren't working out, and so it's a time suck. Yes, and, and you find yourself, again, what happens is you realize you have spoken to, directly to that person less. So the first thing we talk about is, well, have you talked to them, right? And so it's a funny early step, but it, it, um, getting that conversation in early uh, is one key. So that that's one area. We also um, really try to approach 
react to this very compassionately. Um, one of the first things we say is if we see that there is a combination of lack of effort and lack of outcome, that's what we call the worry conversation. Um, and we specifically use the word worry because we want to be compassionate. We say, I'm worried about you. Again, if you heard us last time, we said, assume everybody wants to do great work. So the first thing you do is just check, is something going on? Did they not know? Did they not know what the standards of performance were? Are they having a hard time personally? Um, getting that conversation out there in mm. the most compassionate way will reduce that person from being defensive and make that conversation much easier for you. So I think the thing I've learned in my career is don't wait for these things to get big. So uh, I feel like sta- stage one is when you're detecting that something, so you're coaching the ghost a little bit, you find that there's a time mm-hmm. cycle. And so you're blending now into stage two, which is how you work with that and that compassion and leading with compassion mm-hmm. and, uh, and saying, I'm worried. Um, how else do you work with something? Let's say things continue not to work out or things mm-hmm. progress into a later stage of dysfunction. Well, the, well, one thing we do is when we say lack of effort and lack of outcome, that's a worry conversation. But there's also another conversation that could come sooner, which is lack of outcome, but not from lack of effort. And to me, that sounds like there's a skill gap. So we call that the shift conversation. Like we said, maybe you're just in the wrong job. Um, so we have enough movement around our company to help people uh, find a new project. And again, as long as there, there's foolishness about it, we see the effort, we see an earnest desire to do good work, we try to take care of those with a job shift um, and, and some training. But again, when we've gone through the worry conversation and it still hasn't worked out, um, we try to be upfront with the person and compassionate, um, be really clear about outcomes, and then We do talk, and this came from uh, our past CFO, um, being generous with severance. um, It sounds counterintuitive from a business perspective, but if you spend all your time as a manager wrapped up and worried about that person losing their job and feeling like you, it has to be extreme, then you're less likely to pull the trigger. So having a generous severance program is a good investment, Um, and it's something that that was championed by our finance team even before it was championed as much as it has been championed by our people team. And a lot of people say, uh, I can't possibly afford that. Uh, you're b- going to be saving yourself some money in the in the long run, is how we see it. So tell me, just give us the specifics of maybe what we do here at The Motley Fool, or I know you're out speaking at conferences mm-hmm. about our culture, and maybe you're used to talking to a, a small business entrepreneur, but what's a generous severance approach? Uh, some companies would do one month for every year of service. It might be some uh, a generous severance approach. So I've been working in a company six years. Things have changed, or mm-hmm. I've changed. Things aren't working out. So I have six months that mm-hmm. you continue to pay me mm-hmm. as I look for a new job. Right. Uh, and again, sounds extreme. But the idea of being able to let someone land on their feet and not feel like you're turning their life upside down um, will help you make that decision a lot faster, is what we found. And I know a lot of that thinking, Kara, is it is about the manager who's being put in the position to say goodbye to somebody, somebody they may have trusted or personally hired, been yes. really invested in, and things haven't worked out. Yes. So when all of a sudden you can feel like having that final tough conversation, you're able to say, Hey, good news. You've been here more than 10 years, so you have like a year to mm-hmm. figure out where yes. you're going. That makes it a lot easier for that manager. It does. And and so I would say that helps and the other thing that always helps is um when the person isn't surprised because you've been having the conversations from the early days. I think that is the one thing. I think the harder ones where the person is caught off guard and it's gotten to a really bad place where it's unfixable. So all of you out there that may be avoiding a tough conversation, it's going to be way easier and less expensive on you now to have it. Mm. Well, Devinder, thank you for writing in. You asked, without performance review and showing that they're doing a poor job, how do you get rid of them or discipline them? Kara, I think you really nailed that answer. Thank you for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you. All right, Rule Breaker mailbag item number six. And I want to welcome Frank Thomas, Director of Investing Intelligence here. Or Frank, as you say, sometimes just head math guy. That works too. Welcome. Thanks for having me, David. So, a lot of questions this month coming from people who are kind of keeping up with their own returns Mm -hmm. and calculating how they're doing. And we have a particular problem that I think sometimes we create here at Rule Breaker Investing for members and listeners, and that is that they'll buy a stock, which is good, and then that stock might go up, Mm -hmm. and then they might buy more of it because we say, hey, add to your winners. That's our style. And so, that creates a wonderful problem where people start looking at that and they think, how do I account for that? Or what tool do I keep up with that? So that's a little bit of the theming here. Why I wanted to have you in, Frank. So let's just two questions. Let's start with a short one. This is from Anthony, whose mm-hmm. screen name is Ballroom Blitz. Anthony writes, "Hi, David. Great time listening and walking my dog Fusco as I dog pod." 
All right, Anthony goes on, when you reference your percentage gains versus the market, he says, do you include subsequent purchases? Frank, how do you think about that, and how do we account for that here at The Fool? So, personally, with my own portfolio, I track it in two different ways. Uh, first, I track individual lots or investments of each time I, I buy a stock so I can kind of parse out the performance of different purchases. Uh, so, I can track, you know, how well I'm, um, I am timing my very, like, am I buying at the right valuation or what have you. Right. So, and, for example, if you buy a stock at the 40s, right. you, you, you put it in right there and yep. you, you mark the market against it, you put where the SP5, right. and then if you add to it at 67 yep. on a separate line, maybe in a spreadsheet or maybe a tool, I don't know if you yep. have one you'll tell us about, you then have a separate one where you're also showing where the market was then and you can see them both. Exactly. So, I track them side by side to kind of parse out those, those, um, that detail that he was talking about specifically, and then also I'll track the overall position uh, using what the technical phrase is cash in, cash out, uh, money weighted return, where you're just literally tracking each individual purchase as a, a cash flow, right? So a cash out would be investing in the market, um, each individual transaction, and then you get the overall uh, output, the overall cash out at the end, uh, which is the the current price, and that would that would uh, factor that. Using those both those pers- uh, those perspectives captures but all the detail you could possibly need. And Frank, are you doing this typically now? Um, you are, of course are our head of uh, our director of investing intelligence, so you pr- probably have tools and resources here at the Fool. I sure hope you do because we're a for-profit <laughs> company. Right. Um, whereas, hey, I'm just an armchair investor, and that's really me, David Gardner. Uh, so, what do you, Frank Thomas, the fellow armchair investor, how, do you use a spreadsheet or how do you? Tr- what tools do you use to track? I use Excel just like everybody else. Uh, over over my over my uh, ten years of investing, I've uh, my portfolio tracker has become at many times much more complex, and then more recently far more simplified as my time has uh, gotten more precious to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, spreadsheets are a great way are the the simplest and best way to do it. Um, Excel is obviously the the go to, but Google Docs and Google Sheets has actually gotten a lot better. One thing that might be useful to a lot of uh, retail investors is that you can now import stock data. Automatically from Google Finance, in uh, into your Google Doc spreadsheet, into your Google Doc spreadsheet using Google Finance uh, function. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Frank. And you know, let's let's keep this as rule breaker mailbag item number six. Richard Marin also wrote in kind of a similar story, but he said, "Dear David, having been a Motley Fool member since 1998, subscriber to Hidden Gems, Rule Breakers, Stock Advisor for 13 years or so." He also has a question about tracking returns. Um, in the world of a stock picker like Richard, he says positions are added to, new stocks are selected, on occasion stocks sold on random dates during the course of a calendar year, calculating the overall performance of a portfolio against the broader index can be difficult, especially where weights in different positions mm-hmm. vary significantly. And Richard just gives a little bit more about him, and then Frank, I'd love to hear your perspective. He says, for example, I execute a relatively modest number of trades during the course of a calendar year, between six and ten, he writes. Mm-hmm. But I invest different values to new and existing positions, and then I'm trying to diversify and balance my portfolio. So he'd like some advice on a tool. Frank, am I hearing it's it's Excel once again, or is there anything else? Let's say somebody has a little bit more resources. Is there a higher powered overall portfolio tracking tool that exists out there? There are, but they it tends to be the market tends to be bifurcated between things like Excel and at the very, very, very high end. What hedge funds use? Basically, yeah. So at the at the full here, we use a tool called um, Advent APX, which is what we use to power all like the tracking. Advent. Board. Advent APX. APX. Uh, okay. Uh, by the company called Advent, um, and uh, that's a really institutional grade product, which. It's probably. I mean, if if you're a really, 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 really passionate individual <laughs> investor, and also a, a hedge course, fund, a hedge fund, <laughs> it might make sense for you. But I think Excel is probably the best tool for most people. In terms of the problem that he's talking about specifically, um, if you're just look, interested in tracking the overall performance of your portfolio, and you don't need as much granularity uh, for individual positions, and you just kind of want to wipe away the complexity, the best way to do it is is going back to uh, sort of the basic kind of cash in, cash out overall money-weighted return, where instead of tracking individual transactions and all the dividends and everything like that, you just track how much you deposit into your, your account uh-huh. over time, mm-hmm. and then have the overall current market value portfolio at the end, and using Excel's wonderful XIRR function, we'll get an overall return. That sounds pretty useful and pretty simple mm-hmm. for most of us. I, I definitely use Excel some, but I'm by no means somebody who's excellent at Excel. But um, I think 
Frank, you know much more about this stuff than I do, but both you and I, as individual investors who aren't buying Advent APX for ourselves, can use that method and see how we're doing it. It, it causes you not to worry too much about individual cost bases or where you add it, because you're just looking at the cash in and cash out, as you mentioned. Yep. Thank you, Frank, for your perspective. Before you go, tell me a little bit about your work here. Fool IQ is a phrase that somebody like Richard, who's been a member for years, might recognize, but a lot of people haven't necessarily heard about Fool IQ. So I want you to show off a little bit what you're working on here at The Fool, Frank. So Fool IQ, uh, the platform itself, is sort of an internal analyst research tracking platform. All of the analysts in our newsletters maintain Fool IQ portfolios, which are sort of these, these hypothetical model portfolios of all the stocks they like and, and want to follow with it, uh, that are weighted based on how much, how much conviction they have in a given company. So, for instance, they look just like average portfolios, but they're hypothetical. They're used to power things like a lot of the screeners we have on the Fool's website. Uh, we use this to track the performance of our analyst research that are, in many ways, kind of uh, away from the newsletters themselves. Uh, right, because you might be an analyst here at The Fool, right. and I may have picked a stock that you don't even agree with last month, potentially. Right. You have your own ideas. and So, a fantasy portfolio, which is, while it may sound fantasy, it's very real. You're being tracked directly for your performance. In some ways, what we have done with Motley Fool Caps over the years, internally, that's what's happening here for every one of our analysts and investors. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we use that for uh, you know <laughs> helping people develop their careers over time. That's wonderful, and I, I think that it also helps power our Motley Fool Index, the yes. Fool 100 Index. The Fool 100 Index is a combination of the top 150 highest conviction companies pulled out of uh, Fool IQ and all of our uh, newsletter, rec- newsletter recommendations from Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers. Frank, are you having fun doing the work you're doing here at The Fool? I have fun every single day. I sure hope you do. Thank you for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you, David. All right. Well, our last three rule breaker mailbag items numbers seven, eight, and nine this week. I want to welcome back my good friend David Kretzman. David, welcome. Good to be back, David. Thanks. David, what have you been doing most recently here at The Fool? What are you working on right now? Uh, just trying to not be too distracted by Game of Thrones. Just watched the second episode last <laughs> night. We're taping this on Monday. It aired last night. So, really just trying to stay productive uh, and not think too much about Game of Thrones. And on behalf of Motley Fool Asia, I hope you're getting some good stuff done. We're getting some good stuff That's done. That's where we're working now. I know you've also done a lot of other work. We've worked together on Motley Fool Rule Breakers. You've done some for our marijuana service, etc. We're going to be covering all those things. You and I co-invented what may one day win the Nobel Prize for Economics, the Gardner-Kretzmann Continuum. We're going to speak to that as well. GKC, always uh, always good to have a return appearance. But yeah, good things happening with Asia, cannabis, and everything else in my world at The Fool. Okay, good. Well, let's pick it up with number seven, then. This one comes from Aaron Howard. Hello. He says, I'm Aaron Howard. I'm a full-time college student at Goldie Beacom College. So, I have a limit to my finances and how much I can invest. I've recently taken an interest in investing. I've listened to some David Gardner podcasts, read a few articles on Fool.com. I did research, read the article about which broker to use. I feel as if Ally is one of the best for my situation due to the no minimum and low fees per trade. Good job doing your homework there, Aaron. He says, I would like to invest in both short-term and long-term stocks. Long-term, as in a Roth IRA, but I'm also very interested, Aaron writes, in short-term quick-return stocks with little returns on each before I start investing into long-term stocks. The most recent article I read on Fool.com says to stay away from penny stocks. My issue, Aaron writes, is I want to learn the market and the ins and outs, do my own trading. I feel penny stocks will give me a decent feel for the market with my given financial status. I know this sounds like a bad idea for a college student, but I have been a 4.0 student my whole life, and I feel as if I have the drive and adaptability to learn the patterns and ideas needed to succeed. Any help you can give would be much appreciated. Aaron Howard. Boy, penny stocks are you know, interesting territory. I think every beginner, most beginners, will at least be intrigued by the idea of you know trading penny stocks, trying to find patterns in the chart, whether it's a yakking camel or a I don't know whatever whatever it is. But it almost doesn't matter because if the stock's at thirty-seven cents a share, David, if it goes to a dollar, you've more than doubled your money, right? That is the mentality. I had that too when I was just starting out investing. Did you? Yeah, the idea is that well, if a stock is at thirty-seven cents, it's easier for a thirty-seven cent stock to go to one dollar than it is for a thirty-seven dollar stock to go to a hundred dollars. But in reality, that's not the case. What counts is the overall value of a company. And just because Amazon is at you know eighteen hundred dollars a share or so as we tape this, it doesn't mean it's any less likely to go to thirty six hundred dollars. What counts is the overall total value of the company. So 
So why don't we like penny stocks, typically? Typically, penny stocks are trading for pennies for a reason. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the, the, the companies behind the penny stocks, you have to remember, behind every stock is a company. With penny stocks, typically the companies aren't in that great of shape, if they're even selling a product or generating revenue, oftentimes losing a lot of money, they don't have much of a track record. A lot of sh- uh, shady stuff can be happening with, uh, with, with penny stocks. Um, and it isn't to say that it always will. There's certainly yep. some fine microcap companies and some fine microcap investors. But I do agree with you, David. Then when you're talking about a stock that you know you could double if it just went up from 37 cents to 74 cents, and it's very thinly traded, mm-hmm. and it might be a promotional company that's hired somebody to market their stock for them, and then word gets out on the internet that this one could go from 37 cents to 74 cents. Markets can move like that, and sometimes people take advantage. Some bad actors are in there taking advantage of that. Yeah, the the pump and dump schemes that are out there. So really, where people will front run uh, the, their email list or their their members uh, buy buy up a lot of this stock, then heavily promote it to the public, even. Uh, you know, taking out advertising to, to promote this stock, send it out to their email list, and then be but, selling their shares to the people who are buying. Yeah, but inevitably that that will crash and burn. So mm. the track record with with penny stocks are uh, murky at best. I, I haven't found anyone who has a long term track record of uh, of success when it comes to identifying patterns uh, and and. Any, any sort of meaningful success over yeah. a long run when it comes to penny stocks. We do talk a lot about market cap on this show, and so somebody might be wondering, well, what's a penny stock and what's a micro cap and what are the differences? And I guess for me, I'd, I'd make up that micro caps are, I guess I'd say anything below $250 million of market cap, that or less. And when you get down in penny stockville, I almost think that's its own separate asset class. And I'd say like sub 50 million at that point. Often it's very thinly traded stocks, there aren't many shares. But beyond what is a penny stock or what is a micro cap? I think David, for me, um, these are usually companies that aren't really impactful in the world at large. They're not really doing important things, are they? If their stock is all the way down there at thirty-seven cents a share, and I think we've done much better as investors ourselves as rule breakers, finding the real impact players in the world at large, and those are usually the stocks you can hold for three plus years. Before we go on to rule breaker mailbag item number eight, I mean, Aaron is talking about this concept of short-term investing. Let's pretend it's not even about penny stocks. What do you think about? Did you ever do that? Trade in, trade out. Alongside maybe a longer term approach to investing. Yeah, I've definitely dabbled with that. I I don't do it as much because, again, it's hard to generate any sort of like meaningful consistency with that type of strategy. I think we're, we're, as as humans, we're susceptible to being overconfident. We think we're better than we really are. Uh, Do you think that's true of some of the Game of Thrones characters? Ah, probably so. I think some of them definitely think Cersei definitely think that they're better than they really are. Yeah, it might uh, come back to bite them in the next four episodes. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, with uh, with with short term trading, I mean the. Any time horizon that's less than one year, I think it's, you're really flipping a coin. Uh, so sometimes you'll you'll get lucky. You you will be right on the money. The stock will go up like you anticipated. But for the most part, I've found that I do far better the the longer I extend my time horizon. Even if you're starting with smaller amounts as a student, like like Aaron is, I think you're going to be far better off long term if you don't dabble in in the trading and focus more on what can you do to extend your time horizon. Find a great business that you think will be more relevant 10, 20 years from now. Buy as many of those types of companies as you can and just hold voraciously. I think you'll be a lot better off. So, we want to close by praising Aaron for even getting started investing, for his curiosity, for his 4 0, and for wanting to really lean into this subject. And I think it's fine to act on an initial urge if you like to be a little shorter term. I mean, I wouldn't put a lot of money in it, but you know, some people enjoy their fun money at Las Vegas. Well, you could do it short term trading stocks if you wanted and maybe learn some about the market dynamics. But I think most of us, the earlier the day comes where we realize, I'm in it for life as a long-term player. That's when our real returns start coming. So I would encourage you, Aaron, to think about that side of the the equation far more than the short term. Anyway, thank you for writing in. So now, now let's move to a Gardner Kretzmann continuum element. So Excellent. Bob Hit David has written in, and he says, "Hi, I love the show. Your services. You've helped me beat the market for several years. It's very liberating." Bob writes, "The Gardner Kretzmann continuum is a neat concept." Now, David, could you? Briefly explain the Gardner Kratzman continuum one more time on the show. Sure. So, this is taking the number of stocks you own and divide it by your age. So, if you're 25 years old and you own 25 stocks, your Gardner Kratzman continuum score, or GKC score for short, would be one. And typically, we recommend that people shoot for a GKC score of one or higher. So, essentially, 
have the number of stocks in your portfolio match or exceed your age. Beautifully put. It's like you've done that before. Uh, yeah, we, we've we've rehearsed this <laughs> over the past several months, or over the past year even. Well, you particularly, you nailed that. So, uh, Bob goes on, David. He says, my wife and I both have IRAs, and we have a joint brokerage account. Should we each strive to have a GKC of one, or should we count both of our ages? So, we're both 56, Bob says, and I'm not sure we can adequately track 122 stocks. We currently have around 60 stocks and a few mutual funds. Thanks for all you do. Best regards, Bob. Hit your thoughts here on this this enigma. I just love that Bob is asking this question. <laughs> uh, I don't think we've we've really thought through the implications of GKC. What's when your it comes instinct? To, I have an instinct here. Uh, maybe maybe split the difference. Wow. So GKC plus 50 percent. Okay, and you know. The reason it's not just the G or the K is because we we partner, we talk this out. My own approach here, David, is to think Bob's killing it right now. I mean, if I would say you, if you have a spouse and you or a partner, and you really feel like your spouses and partners, like you're you're one, which you're supposed to be, kind of when you unite your lives, I'd say you know that's one group, one portfolio. So sixty over a fifty-six looks like a one plus GKC to me, but but you know, you're right. You have a higher standard than I do in general. I think you have a higher GKC than I do as I well. I think so. So it's not surprising you might suggest a 90 over their average age is is around the GKC that you'd like them to shoot for. And I think it probably it definitely depends on the the partnership or the couple that you have there. If they're both stock pickers and researching the uh. stocks, obviously that can inch a little bit higher. But otherwise, yeah, I think st- sticking toward that. One score uh, is a good way to go. Context is so important, isn't it? So you're adding some important nuance in there at the of end, course. David, which is why I have you on this show. Hey, it's I why mean, I'm here. Yeah, nuance. Which, by the way, has been a pretty bad stock pick of mine in Motley Fool Stock Advisor, but that's a separate <laughs> topic. Okay, uh, last one. Rule breaker mailbag item number nine. This comes from Paul Peck, writing from Sela Energy Partners. I found this pretty compelling. Let's have a fun discussion here. He writes, David, please accept this in the spirit intended. I get it. The marijuana business seems to be a good bet right now. But the question I have for you is, are you really comfortable with pushing the pro-marijuana agenda when you're basically affecting young lives? There are many things to investing, and from a moral position, this should not be one of them that anyone with any moral compass should even consider, in my Paul Peck's opinion. He goes on, just as importantly, if I'm feeling this way, then there are thousands of others that you are alienating as well due to the fact that you are pushing the drug business and to hell with what is right. That's Those are his words. That's why I will not join your, in quotes, club. He closes, over the last four years, I've traveled extensively to Denver, and the city that I once loved is now a place that I would now never consider moving to. The streets are littered with transients and young mounds of non-productive flesh that do nothing for our society but sit on the sidewalk and smoke pot. And you encourage that pestilence in our society. I just don't get it. I hope you find your compass. Paul Peck, Sela Energy Partners. Now, that said, David, I think he meant me. But since we're two Davids, <laughs> sure. and you've done some work in this area, too, I thought it'd be a fun conversation to have. So, David, what are some initial reactions that you have to that note? Well, I think whenever we're talking about socially responsible investing or really figuring out our compass as investors, there is going to be that element of subjectivity. Uh, some people will still stay away from alcohol, for instance. Does that mean you don't buy shares in Chipotle, which also sells alcohol in addition to burritos and tacos? You can really extrapolate this in a whole bunch of different ways. So I think we have to recognize that there won't be one hard and fast rule that everyone agrees on when we're talking about social responsibility. And that's such an important point. I just want to echo that, David, by saying um, we believe that responsibly investing and investing foolishly means that your money is following your beliefs. So, um, I would be the first to say that for Mr. Peck or his ilk, that it makes no sense to invest in that area of the world. And I personally have not invested in any marijuana companies. I have no problem, per se, with the legalization of marijuana. I think I've generally been pro that for years and years. It all goes back, I remember reading Stephen Jay Gould, um, the Harvard scientist, uh, once wrote an article uh, it was either for the Atlantic or Harper's, and he wrote, uh, it was called The War on, in parentheses, Some Drugs. And he was pointing out that there's really not that much difference between what marijuana and alcohol does to our bodies. If you were to look at what they do to our societies, alcohol does far more damage uh, globally than, than marijuana. It's not even close. And I remember reading that as a young man, thinking, you know, that he makes a really good point there. It is kind of arbitrary how we've decided this one is legal and that one's not. There's some social and historical background to this. But in the end, I totally agree, David, that foolishly investing, you should put your money 
where your money is. Absolutely. And and when it comes to cannabis, I think you, you do have to recognize that even pre-legalization, it's not as if there wasn't cannabis in the streets or in society. You know, I grew up in Northern California, kind of the, the weed capital <laughs> of, of <laughs> California and the, and the country pre-legalization. And it's not as if young people weren't getting their hands on marijuana. Just as just because the, the drinking limit is 21 doesn't mean you're not having 19-year-olds getting their hands on alcohol. It's, it's some of these things you just can't necessarily limit. Um, so, in general, I, I, I personally would prefer uh, a, a non-criminalized uh, substance. So, like, I, w- I would prefer cannabis be legalized and in the open rather than having really a, a police state around cannabis. Now, of course, there will be some give and take with that. And I think as a society, we're still adjusting to what we sure what are. does legalized cannabis look like. And Colorado, California, some of these uh, relatively earlier states to, to legalize the substance, they're, they're kind of the, the testing ground for what is the right mix of, of policy and practice. And, and to that end, David, I wanted to mention, I was just reading this, uh, I think it was in The Economist recently, with the recreational use of cannabis now legal in 10 states and the District of Columbia, and medical marijuana legal in 23 states, marijuana is on its way to becoming an $80 billion industry in the United States by the year 2030. That's according to estimates by Cowan, Inc., uh, the research firm. So there's no question in my mind. I think this is around for the rest of our lives. I think society is shifting here. Some people aren't aren't going to like it certainly, but if you're just looking at the reality of it, where it's already legal, and you know this far better than I do, David Kretzman, uh, some of the numbers. But that's a pretty astonishing thing to think about an eighty billion dollar industry ten years from now. Yeah, and there there is a lot of nuance within the industry. You have the the recreational side, you know. Kind of the the classic, you know, eating an edible or smoking a joint, where you're really doing it for for leisure or for fun. But you also have the medical side, which, to me, that that gets me most excited. I don't personally use cannabis products, but I never the, have myself. <laughs> I don't have any interest, but I do like alcohol. <laughs> okay, well, there clear. you go. Which is a drug. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> but the 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 medical implications. Uh, you know, you last summer you had the FDA unanimously approve Epidiolex, which which was the first uh, cannabis based drug that treats a rare form of childhood uh, epilepsy. Uh, so, again, we're still in the very early stages of researching the plant, the substance, its potential uses. But I, I think there's far more upside for us as a society from legalizing it, from researching the plant, better understanding it, similar to what we like. We know the dangers of alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, people still you know, make their own uh, decision when it comes to alcohol that they're they're taking responsibility in most cases for it. I think cannabis should be similar, but by all means, if you're not comfortable with cannabis or believe in the business, stay away as an investor. I agree. And to close, that's why I appreciate I appreciate being able to share that as our final mailbag item and to have you in with your perspective, David. And I absolutely appreciate Mr. Peck taking the time to write us. It does take two to make a market. We all have different views about what's going to work, what's not, what should be allowed to work, what shouldn't be allowed to work, and that's part of working together. I think what's great about the United States of America is more than any country in the world, even though people talk about how divided we are, I think we're actually far more united by the idea that we should talk things out and try different things. Some states it's legal, some states it's not. There are lots of different approaches. But to bring it forward to a final point, foolish investing is about making sure you put your money where your money is. Some of us think alcohol is great, some of us think alcohol is horrible. Statistics show us all kinds of different things. Here's a funny stat. Denver, which Mr. Peck mentions at the end of the note, I was just reading the U.S. News and World Report came out with the top-ranked U.S. cities, and what was number two on the list just a week ago, days after I read this email, Denver. So it seems like they're doing things pretty well. But sounds like this is a gentleman who probably knows the city better than I do. He sees certain things. Sometimes we see what we're looking to see ahead of time. But um, so for most of us, I think we do well uniting a combination of our own horse sense, our own instincts of what we want the world to look like, and invest that way toward a better future. But also use data and objective understanding that goes outside of our own opinion in order to try to reach our best ideas about not only how to invest, but how to run this country. So, anyway, David Kretzman, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me, as always. All right, well, there you have it. Another Rule Breaker mailbag started and finished. Thus, we say goodbye, bid adieu to April 2019. I hope you've had a great month next month. Let's just talk about next week. Next week on this show, we're going to have Stock Stories Volume 3. So, this is one I go back to occasionally. It's an opportunity for me and some of my analysts to tell stories. 
like fun, interesting, illuminating stories around stocks. A lot of people talk about story stocks. Well, we like to flip that phrase and tell stock stories. So I'll have some familiar and some new voices in next week to share short stories about a given stock here or there, a company you might be invested in or might be interested by. So that's how we're going to kick open May. But through May, I see we're going to be reviewing five winners in a thinking world and see how that five stock sampler has done five winners in a thinking world a little bit later in the month. We're going to look at the future of sports. I'm going to have a visionary in to talk about the future of sports and sports business and, of course, a lot of other foolishness to come. So, in the meantime, well, as you hear this, I'm probably in Phoenix, Arizona, as I mentioned, the Conscious Capitalism Conference, and looking forward to my board meeting there. Maybe I will be high-fiving or shaking hands with some of you if you're attending that conference. But we'll be back in the saddle, ready for a regular May, starting next week. In the meantime, full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.